can't say enough about my time at Kilmarnock. I, I was disappointed in myself near the end. I was a bit downhearted at times. But overall, Kilmarnock stands above every other club that, uh, that I played for or could have played for. Fans favourite of over 200 games. Ambitious, both on and off the park. In this episode of Killer Histories, we learn of winger Jimmy Cook's experiences as a wide-eyed newcomer to one of Scotland's most illustrious teams. Jimmy discusses his approach to the game and how it influenced his post-football second career. As always, we focus on one specific match chosen by the guest. On this occasion, it's the 1972 Scottish Cup semi-final. Our sprightly winger is tearing through, but Caesar is in hot pursuit. I'm Gordon Gillen, and this is Jimmy Cook's Big Match. Kilmarnock and Celtic had some titanic battles in the 1960s and 70s. Now, your classic match is one of these. It's the Scottish Cup semi-final of 1972. What are your personal memories of that match? Well, Gordon, first of all, it was a huge challenge for the club and for uh, the Kelly team, of course. For many in the team, it was their first time playing at Hamden. But uh, quite naturally, it was home from home for Celtic. So for a lot of our players, it was quite strange. But for the game itself, we prepared really well. Our game plan was to keep the game tight for the first 20 minutes, uh, which involved uh, nullifying the expected pressing game of Jimmy Johnston, Bobby Lennox, Dixie Deans and Louis McCarry. Uh, but on the other hand, we had Billy Dixon, George Maxwell, Brian Rodden and Jackie McGrory who defended terrifically well. We also had Ross Matthew, Eddie Morrison and myself putting pressure on the Celtics back four. So we were lined up quite well and there wasn't an onslaught. Um, we kept the game quite open, but Dixie Deans opened the scoring with a screamer from about 18 yard, the 18-yard line on the 44th minute didn't dump us uh, we were still in the game and I had scored in every round I was really keen that in this semi-final when I was playing really well and I was determined to keep up my record I scored in every round and I did Billy McNeil tried to thwart that <laughs> Billy was marking me on the halfway line 
Jimmy McSherry had put me through and I turned Big Billy and headed for goal and Billy was shouting after me, I'm going to pull you down, Jimmy. Uh, but he didn't and I scored on the 49th minute. It then went a wee bit pear-shaped. Dixie Dean scored again in 59 minutes. We were still in the game. I say um, it went pear-shaped. It didn't really. We were still in the game. We were still giving them uh, a run for their money. Later, Lou McCary wrapped it up on 80 minutes with a great goal. Overall, a terrific game, a terrific experience, uh, and it was one of my finest games, and I cherish that memory, Gordon. Trying to keep the game tight, was that the Kilmarnock way in the team that you played in? Not in every game. The tactical decisions were taken from the point of view of what it was we needed to do. That meant on this occasion, not on every occasion, but on this occasion, that meant that uh, we had to defend well. And it was for that reason that I mentioned particularly George, Billy Dixon, George Maxwell, Brian Rodman and so on. They did uh, nullify much of what Celtic was thrown at us in the first 20 minutes. This particular game, uh, it was necessary that uh, we didn't allow them an early goal that would have deflated the team. So for that reason, I think we played the right tactic. It would be fair to say that for a wide player, you were quite prolific. We're talking about maybe a goal every six games. I did score quite a number of goals, probably more than the average wing player would would achieve in a a season. Uh, So I was quite proud of that, and I was always looking for the goal. I was always looking for the opportunity to get goals. But probably, on the other hand have a responsibility. The responsibility I had was, of course, the struggles, but the bigger responsibility was to feed the front two. And that was something that I was very conscious of. We had a terrific front two, Matthew and Eddie Morrison. They were prolific scorers. And uh, feeding them sometimes was more important than to try and play the game probably, or or pretty much on my own in the way that I wanted to do, but I was disciplined and I I wanted to ensure that they had the opportunity to hit the net. Thinking back to the start of your career, I've spoken to some some of your former teammates and the word tenacious has come up quite a lot. Mm -hmm. Do you think that that was maybe one of the qualities that kind of got you started in the game? Yes, uh, I was tenacious. Uh, I was fearless. I could compete, so I had a number of qualities that were important for me as a small player. Describing my play at that time, I was tenacious. I don't think I was a dirty player. I think I put my mark on some people now and again when I needed to. Um, But I wasn't a dirty player. Uh, I was tenacious and I was quick. And I was an, an overall wing player, but I also um, mixed it, cross-passing with, cross-passing with Tommy McLean. So we were always dangerous, always dangerous. We did have a method where we could almost signal to each other that the full-backs that we were playing against 
maybe could have been dealt with by a different approach, either my approach or Tommy's approach. So we would consider what was happening as we played against the fullbacks, uh, what opportunities we were getting, were we getting enough uh, ammunition to the front two? And sometimes it was right that we switched because, well, we both, we both were kind of two-feeted anyway, but there are certain nuances that are different playing left than there is playing right, and the nuances make a difference. And it's that just one chink in the armour that allows you to penetrate but you could do it on the right wing uh, and vice versa. So we interchanged a lot. And and also, critically, we broke through in the 18-yard box playing tight football. We played, Tommy and I played very tight football. The passing game flowed from him to me, from me to him, and suddenly we were in the 18-yard box and suddenly he was scoring or I was scoring. There was a lot of fluidity in the way that we played and were allowed to play and encouraged to play. Uh, so from that perspective, it was pretty unique. It was pretty unique. There weren't many clubs that had players that could deal with that. And of course, he was dedicated to the game of football. He was dedicated to the game of, of, of coaching and how football should be played. He was a bit a purist as well. So it all worked out for us pretty well. My early career uh, included trials uh, for Liverpool. Uh, I went to Liverpool, I met Bill Shankly, Ian St John and so on, and I had my trials against Stoke City. I was a young, probably uh, a young uh, individual that wasn't quite matured because mm. I was only about 17 and uh, I had come from, uh, not from a city, but for the country. And I noticed right away when I got to Liverpool that most of the players were full of confidence. I didn't have the same confidence at that stage. So I didn't have, I, I, I mean, Shankly was fully praised for me and he did contact me about two or three times uh, and he did sometimes uh, do that through actually the house manager Tommy Walker so from for that reason I then said I think the best thing for me to do at this stage in my career is uh, to stay in Scotland to ensure that I gave myself the best opportunity to develop and I signed for Hearts. And on my last appearance for Hearts, I had played uh, mostly the games I played were in the second team. But again, even at that stage, I was scoring lots of goals and making crosses for uh, centre forwards. But my last appearance uh, for Hearts, and after the match of that last appearance, I was approached by a football scout called Gus McClelland who had actually been instrumental in signing Tommy McLean to Kilmarnock and Billy Dixon. And he arranged trials for me. First of all, he arranged trials for me at Watford. But uh, my persuasion was to stay in Scotland still. And uh, I, discussed, I, did, I did discuss that with uh, Gus McClelland. 
and we decided that uh, we would take a trip to Kilmarnock. I went to Kilmarnock. The manager was Malcolm McDonald, and he signed. Well, he signed actually both me and John Gilmer on the same day. And um, John Gilmer turned out to be a terrific player as well, a wing half, and uh, absolutely fantastic. But going back to what you talked about, Gordon, about being tenacious, I, I, I was tenacious. I was, a, I was a tenacious wing player. I was very quick. I was fearless. I could score goals and I could make goals for the strikers. So I was an all-round player. I worked hard at my fitness and my delivery to the front two, which was always one of my aims, was a key part of my game. I was making goals quite constantly. Uh, and I was always willing to try it back and assist uh, the fullbacks. Funny story, but particularly Billy Dixon, who was lightning quick, but he couldn't tackle a fist up. <laughs> but he could rip past me on the overlap, and his goal assists from doing that and his record was frightening. But it was just a terrific combination. And then going forward from a joint monarch. I was really impressed by the quality of the talent on show and the fitness levels. I say the fitness levels, but although we all wanted to be fit, Andy King and Jackie McGrory, they liked to fag before training and before games and got away with it. At that time, we travelled uh, to training and what was called the Lark Hall Special. The Lark Hall Special was the team, it was the cars that we run with Tommy McLean, Billy Dixon, Jim McLean, and John Gilmer, and later, and later than that, Jimmy McSherry. Uh, so the Larkhall special was uh, quite recognised throughout the time that we travelled between Larkhall and Kilmarnock. And we shared the cars. My car was a Mini Cooper. Not much room in that. If you're all squeezing into a Mini Cooper, that couldn't have been good for the hamstrings. No, it wasn't good for the hamstrings, uh, particularly for John Gilmer, who was about six feet two. Uh, but we did it, uh, and we sang all the way to training, uh, and we sang all the way the way back. It was an innocent group of people, if you like. We uh, we just gelled together, and uh, we were great fun. It helped on the park as well to have that relationship. And round about that time, I think Willie Waddle was there just before Walter and. Wally Waddle left the team in great physical shape. And of course, Walter trained the team and maintained the standards, uh, which were really quite exceptional. The application of the squad is another thing that excited me. Both in the training and in games, uh, it was you know, the highest of professional quality that I was playing with. Pretty much a dream for a 19-year-old. And of course, a wing player in this era always got the reputation of being small people. You know, Tom McLean, myself, Willie Henderson, and so on, a number of people. I weighed in at nine stone and three pounds in old money. I, I, I wasn't man mountain by any stretch of the imagination. The opposition had never frightened me. Uh, no matter the size or reputation, I was, I was never intimidated. There were lots of running battles, uh, and the physical abuse from the opposition was, was relentless. Something approaching attempted murder in, in, in a lot of cases. In almost every game, there we got that, or I got that. John Gregg, Danny McGrain, John Blackley, these were all the hired assassins. They put a stamp on you. But, of course, I was no angel. <laughs>
as you say, Jimmy, it's something that as a player with a, a slighter frame compared to some, particularly compared to some of these guys that um, that we're thinking about, were you trying to create a reputation for yourself? Don't mix with me, or was it more that it just came naturally that you knew you had to compete physically? It came naturally to me. I wanted uh, to be fair at all times. I, I mean, I could I, I could lay my mark on players that uh, deserved it, but I always wanted to be fair. I had a way of playing football that pleased me, and that's important in football. You've got to be comfortable in your skin. You've got to be confident about what you want to achieve. And uh, I was no different. Yes, I was. I had a reputation for getting into confrontations, but I was always conscious that I was here to play a football game and not a boxing match. <laughs> A golden era for Scottish football, I think it's fair to say that. 50s through 60s into the 70s, a really good time for Scottish football. Lots of yes. good technical quality, but there was a physical element to it as well, wasn't there? Uh, there was. Um, there was, and the, the Scottish game was being compared to the English game. The Scottish game was a physical game, and the English game was more demure, if I can put it like that. Yeah. Our game was tough. We played, of course, in atrocious conditions. There was nothing like the uh, help and assistance that footballers get today. We didn't get anything like that. We trained hard during the week. We were conscious that we were going into a game that we could lose, and we tried to avoid that at all costs, of course. Uh, But we were very responsible. But it was tough. It was really tough. It was just part and parcel of the game. And in those days, that was it. So looking back, uh, it seems draconian, I I think, in today's terms, that we were probably miles miles behind where they are now. I'll always be grateful to Kilmarnock. I had incredibly lucky to have played for Kilmarnock. I really do mean that. And I played with a super group of great players, not good players, great players. And I had wonderful encouragement from the Kilmarnock support right through my career. Even when I wasn't playing as well, I still got encouragement. And I've them to thank uh, for much of what I've achieved at Rugby Park. I remember the chant the supporters had for me, which was, we've got Jimmy, Jimmy Cook on the wing, on the wing. Great stuff. Uh, so they had, they were always around me, uh, looking for autographs and really polite about doing that. So the playing staff and the combination of the supporters was a terrific balance and suit me down to the ground. It gave me a lot of confidence to do the things that I did on the football field. Above all, uh, I probably remember the players that were always and will always be my friends. The McLean brothers, Billy Dixon, John Gilner, Jim McSherry, Ross Matthew, Eddie Morrison, Big Frank, Big Frank Beatty, you'll always be Big Frank to me, uh, Jack McGrory, Andy King, Hugh Allen, the physio, Walter, of course, and sadly, a lot of these players have died. And it's when you... When you do something like this, Gordon, where I'm speaking to you about something from a different era, and then you realise that the names that I've ruled off there 
Many of them are not here. And that is something that should never be forgotten, that these players were terrific players. Football's, football's like anything. It's a game, it's work, and it involves great people. And life's like that. And these people are, have died. They're, they're regarded with the greatest fondness. No, no question about that. What do you think the qualities of your game were that meant that they sang a song about you? I think anybody in sport respects a trier. Uh, I think anybody in sport respects somebody that has got a talent. And that's how I felt. I felt that I did have a talent, I loved the game, and you display the love for the game by the way that you play. It's in there somewhere that the, the fan base decided that they would adopt me as one of the players that they would sing for. Not, not everybody got that um, opportunity. I think I was respected for what, what I represented in terms of my own, my own play and also uh, what I did for the team and uh, what I was capable of doing on the park. The fans, I mean, there was, there was, there'd probably be 8,000, 10,000 at our home games. Celtic and Rangers, we would maybe get uh, 16,000 or thereabouts. But half the town were away watching Rangers and Celtic. And that saddened me because with more support, Kilmarnock would have wiped the floor with a number of the teams that beat them. And if we'd had that support, I'm pretty certain that we would have won a lot more than we did. But that doesn't detract from the, from the fact from, or from the point that uh, I would do it all again. The late 1960s, while still a period of on-field success for the club, were marked by financial worries. The possibility of part-time football became a regular topic of conversation as Kilmarnock struggled to break even. In 1969, a bonus dispute resulted in several key players seeking a transfer. I asked Jimmy what it was like to be involved in such a turbulent series of events. I mean, it was quite unpleasant to go through this. You've got to look at it from both perspectives. There's the, there's the management team and there's the players. The management team would probably say that uh, the bonuses that were being discussed were foreign to them, and we would, as a team, as a bunch of guys, would say that that was quite untrue. So from the outset, that was the platform that we were that we were talking about, and the whole affair uh, should have been better managed, and by both sides, and compromises should have been reached through a bit of thoughtful negotiation and recognition on both sides that reaching uh, well, a satisfactory outcome would have protected the integrity of Kilmarnock FC. It's that last part that is significant because I've told you, and, uh, and I'm genuinely grateful to Kilmarnock for everything, but that last part, the integrity of Kilmarnock Football Club was tainted by that affair and the uh, and the press that it got and it could have been avoided 
in my mind, I looked at them as two separate points. But I'm pretty certain that the financial situation at the club played a big part in the bonuses being held back. So from that perspective, you could probably say the battle of the bonuses in part-time football were something, in my opinion, that both should never have went as far as they did. The issue on part-time football was wrong in so many ways. There was no consultation with the senior playing staff. Nobody knew. Senior playing staff, and nobody knew. And of course, we were were all shocked with the the decision. Some people in tears. And it could have been avoided. There were good people on the board. But equally, uh, there were those on the board that were pretty ruthless and never properly considered the magnitude of what they were doing and the decision that they were taking. And to this day, I'll always maintain that. It must have been clear. It must have been clear to the board much earlier in the process that the financial burden required critical attention. The board didn't react to the change in financial climate. The boards and most boardrooms were changing. There was more money being put into the game by these entrepreneurs and so on. There was no attempt to recruit people uh, of financial substance to the board earlier. There could have been people that were brought in that could have guided the club and guided the the board members. People that could have come in with um, business acumen. The position could have been very, very different with a fresh assessment from even the wider Ayrshire business community where there could have been people that could have been approached that were prepared to put money into the club, which could have involved recruiting fresh financial talent to the board. In my kind of view, I think the board, sorry, some members of the board didn't want that because it could have meant that they would need to have walked, and and that was wrong. So it needed a really strong injection of cash. But in my opinion, I think it's clear that due process was definitely overlooked. I said they went out the game not with any great uh, flurry of pleasure. I had been I had played my last games with um, Dumbarton, Falkirk, and uh, that was that was a painful experience. But what it allowed me to do was to uh, not go to university, but to go to college in Bathgate. I took some qualifications, and and that gave me a start on something that I believed that I would be good at, which was in the business community. I did everything I could to break into something that was almost a brick wall because the business community is difficult to penetrate. Managed to come across a chap. He gave me the opportunity to start my career uh, in business and he was the uh, managing director. I met his son at, uh, when I was at college and that's how I got to know him. And he gave me the opportunity to come and work for a company called Skoll Lager. 
and uh, that was that was the kickoff for me as far as a new career was concerned. I was with that company for about uh, two and a half years, and then I went to a rum company, Black Heart Rum, and I ended up as managing director, uh, and I was managing director there. I then went from there to Glen Morangy Whiskey Company, who had Artbeck whiskies and who were bought out by Louis Vuitton, and I worked for Louis Vuitton in Europe as their director of communications and director of the um, financial team. So it was it was a big job. I was covering somewhere approaching twenty five to thirty countries. I was travelling every week by plane, and I was I was responsible for taking the business from quite a low point to an extremely high point. And, and I got rewarded for that uh, because I became managing director. Now, you could never have imagined that your career would take that... T- well, you would have had ambitions when you started your business qualifications to go into that area. To me, it seems so different to the football environment. It's very different from the football environment. There are aspects of it that help. Uh, we talked earlier about me being tenacious, so why wouldn't you do that in business? There were aspects of what I was doing. I was ambitious. I was using some of the psychological techniques that I used as a football player, and I was converting them into a business product, a business situation, and, and that was helping me get an edge on many of the people that I was working with and so that's why I was promoted so many times in my opinion but you're right uh, it's not something that I thought that I would ever be involved in but it was hugely rewarding not just financially but it was also financially rewarding but hugely rewarding from the point of view of being able to try and make a difference and make things better which was always my motto in football as well. Uh, And to this day, I've got football to thank for much of what I achieved later in life, both in the business community and outside the business community, community, engaging with people and being able to have substantial discussions with them about different things. So widening my horizon entirely. When players leave a football club would there be the support there to lead you into that career or was this entirely down to your own determination it was completely down to my own determination so again i'm feeding off my career i was well not my career but i was feeding off my approach to football and i was allocating that approach to the business community taking the learnings that i had from football and the disciplines that were adhered to in football and taking that through to help my career and and it came it came so easily in my own brain I could I could look at the job that I had to do I could switch into gear and in there somewhere was a discussion with myself about how would I do this in football and from that perspective 
it, it was a, a huge achievement. But you could argue that I've got football to thank for achieving what I did achieve at that time. Because I borrowed much of the disciplines in football and brought them into the business world, particularly when you're when you're dealing with having a, a team of about Jimmy Cook for such a fascinating insight into his playing career, as well as setting the scene for this era in Kilmarnock's history. Jimmy played in some other classic matches at home and abroad, and we will hear much more from him later in the series. The Killy Histories project is made by Right Half Communications in partnership with the Kilmarnock FC Former Players Association and the Killy Trust. Visit at righthalf.co.uk as always, I owe a debt of thanks to many, without whom this series would not be possible. To Paul Clark and the former Players Association for setting up the interview, and to Kilmarnock FC historian John Livingston for his statistical research. The theme music, Clear Progress, by scottholmesmusic.com, is used under free Creative Commons licence. This interview was recorded in August 2020 by telephone. I'm Gordon Gillen. See you next time. In our time, we were a bunch of chaps that um, were from deprived areas on many occasions. And uh, so you had to be a community. By being a community, you were always conscious about the person that you were playing football with, as an example. You were always conscious that you had to perform to allow them to perform. And, and that's how the game of football was played then, because they were your buddy. No, they were your buddy.
we played pranks, played pranks with Jim McSherry as well, and it was it was so much fun. We tied his car up at one point. He was in the shower. We, uh, when he was in the shower, we tied his car up, tied a, a rope round about the steering wheel, uh, started the car up, and let it go round and round and round and round, and uh, Jimmy came out and. Uh, well, I won't, I won't say what you said, but um, uh, it wasn't very nice. Well, 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 when I say it wasn't very nice, it, uh, <laughs> it, it was, um, it was, it, it was colourful.